Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Well, 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 my friends, welcome to episode 180 of Agitators Anonymous podcast. This is Alan Averill, singer in a heavy metal band. Please don't forget that. Um, trying to make some sense of things I do not understand. Um, and today is a, well, a complicated podcast. I'm going to tackle something which I probably should have done a couple of weeks ago. Um, I did a podcast just after the invasion of Ukraine about the Ukraine war, and I've tackled some difficult um, and I suppose reasonably, well, most definitely complex subjects, but perhaps none quite as complicated as this one. I'm going to talk about the Middle East uh, in episode 180. So if you were hoping for uh, some dumb heavy metal tour stories, you're going to have to wait a little bit. Now, fools rush in. Fools definitely rush in to try and comment on this subject. And I sort of held back a couple of podcasts before making some um, observations on it. So what I'm going to try and do is actually not put across, um, you know, political polemics about, you know, opinions about this, that and the other, but actually look at and try an explanation of the history and why perhaps things are the way they are. As I said, look... I mean, um, the last week or two has just been listening to a lot of podcasts, rereading some passages from books, um, because this is a subject I was quite interested in. And I think if anybody of a certain age who grew up in the 80s and the 90s probably remembers um, constantly hearing about the Middle East in the news, just as well, just the same as people outside of Ireland constantly heard about the IRA. Um, and bombings in England and bombings in the north and all this kind of stuff. It was just a constant. And um, Yasser Arafat's um, face was just um, ubiquitous. It was just everywhere. You constantly heard about him. Um, And in the early 90s, you had the Oslo Peace Accords and all that kind of thing. But you grew up that every, um, you know, 6 to 12 to 18 months was punctuated with some kind of uh, turmoil in the Middle East. So what I'm going to try and do is um, at least on my own terms, my own dumb goddamn terms is try and unravel a little bit of the history and the reasons why some of the things are the way they are. Might might be enlightening, might be useful for you um, because I think um, the modern diseases we've talked about many times on the podcast is to just jump feet uh, feet first in with an opinion about something um, because that's what the last 10 years has done to us, the social media derangement. It has inculcated us with the principle that every thought we have, um, someone must know about. It must be worth something. And, um, of course, after the attacks on the October the 7th, um, the amount of people who just jumped in with opinions, um, one, two, three, four hours after, it wasn't even possible to know properly what had happened. And also, um, the horror of what happened hadn't quite unfolded yet. Um, and so many people just jumped to what we could consider ill-informed opinions. Um, personally, I held my counsel trying to figure out what was going on um, and try and at least have some sort of understanding of the region. I think back to books I read, um, uh, you know, Robert Fisk's book, The History of the Middle East, and 
um, you know, the, all the Shah's men and trying to understand the history of the Middle East is so complicated. Um, it's the same thing, I suppose, when somebody, you know, you've every most Irish people have been there in a bar somewhere um, on the east coast of America. Maybe it's Boston or New York. And you've met somebody who says, oh, I'm Irish. And, and, you know, I'm Irish. And it gets on to the troubles and it gets on to stuff about the north. And you probably know, you've probably heard opinions from people and you've like, literally fucking taking your hat off and going like sorry hang on what wait that's what you think okay just let's fucking um stall the digger there pull the stopper or whatever it is that they say and go look here's the story here's the history it goes back 800 years it goes you've got to start mentioning william of orange you start going into all the stuff every irish person has been there every irish has been there person has been there after three or four years trying to somehow grapple with um the the complexities of Irish history, as I've done on the podcast. There are a few, if you go back some episodes, um, you know, the famine and all sorts of stuff. The recent, more recent one, the famine, but the repercussions of the famine. So all of these, um, you know, every historical, um, every modern context has like a historical um, stone has been dropped in, um, in the lake and the ripples keep spreading out. And ripples of events that happened 2,000 years ago, which is where we're going to start with this, are still being felt in the Middle East. That's how far all of this is going back. And that's got to change a lot of the um, knee-jerk reactions and modern contextualizations that we try and place on this without understanding the history. Um, so it's not going to be... Um, this is uh, the first part of this. I might get to my um, opinions at the end of it. So if you're waiting for the, the juicy hot takes, you're going to have to wait and listen to the end. But I think this podcast is mainly going to be um, an observation of the history. I hope it's of some kind of use to you. Um, so... The podcast is ever sponsored by Metal Blade Records. Um, by now, you've, of course, bought the new Primordial. I presume you have in one of the uh, many myriad of colors that are available on the vinyl. Um, the vinyl. Um, and you are using that um, code AA2023 um, over at IndieMerch.com. Just follow the links underneath. If you're out there with a the band... Um, and you're thinking to yourself, we really need a cool backdrop. Then get in touch with me. I can put you in touch with the people. Um, from next week on, I'm going to start again um, with a sponsored ad read by um, an Irish band. Um, it feels maybe the, the wrong podcast today to kind of interject into the middle of such serious history um, with, uh, you know, an ad for a band playing in the background. Um, so I might put that off until next week. We'll see. I might give you a preview of the song at the end. So I'm trying to get you to get to the end of the podcast. I know it's a, I'm part of the attention economy. But it is the way it is. Um, so with all due respects to uh, said band, we'll see if we get there. Um, if not, it will definitely be in next week's slightly, maybe less heavy duty podcast. So let's tread carefully. I have friends on both sides of the divide. I have friends... Um, from Israel, uh, we have played with bands from Israel. Um, actually, I was with a very good friend of mine from Israel, Tal, uh, on October the 7th, and we discussed this st all of this stuff at length. I have friends who are Arabs, I have friends who are Muslims. Um, I play football with many of those people as well, etc., etc. Does that need saying? I don't know. But I will try and say that um, between both sets of the people that I know, I've had discussions about this problem. And it's complicated. God damn, it's complicated.
But today's podcast is going to try and with an objective view um, and a kind of, you know, very middle of the road um, or some may say fence sitting, i.e. because it's not full of, um, you know, acerbic opinion and hot takes. It's just maybe an explanation of some um, fact, historical facts that maybe can be of use used to and put some context on the situation. Now, the first thing I'll say is this, and I said this a couple of weeks ago to somebody. Um, I said it in the podcast, um, and I said it to somebody I was discussing this with a month ago or so. I said, well, you know, in the Bible, such and such and such, and they looked at me with ten heads, like, you know, because they're part of this modern, secular, atheist, Western mindset, you know, which I understand, Um I said, well, in the Bible, there's, you know, there's tribes of this and there's geographical claims to this and the other. And they were looking at me with 10 heads. And I said, look, the Bible was written at a time by people and it's set in a time of, you know, um, it's got a historical timeline. There are actual factual uh, figures in it. Now, of course, you know, you don't, I'm not asking you to believe the fishes and loaves and walking on water and all the uh, parables and all that kind of stuff. But if you've ever actually looked at the Bible, it's full of historical stuff. And that's where this history starts. Um, This is where it starts, because about 2000 years ago, yep, 2000 years ago. Now, you think Irish history is complicated when we go back 800, 850 years ago. But 2000 years ago in the region of the Middle East, um, many, many people, many tribes, um, Israelis were displaced by the Romans. Yes, the Roman Empire. Um, go and watch the life of Brian for your historical examples. But they were displaced by the Romans. And they were um, tribes moved to Iraq, to what is modern day Iraq, to Yemen, um, took to, some took to, you know, moved to Central Europe. And there began to form uh, Jewish Israeli communities all, all around the place Spain, Portugal. Um, and you know, that first displacement, because these are words, I've got to be careful with my words here, because this podcast is not intended to put, um, you know, either side of the um, argument with judgment, just to try and present some historical facts and context. Um, and that's the kind of first displacement of peoples in the region. Oh, well, I shouldn't say the first, but it's a displacement of the peoples in the region. That is at the behest of the Roman Empire. If you want to go and take... Um, I think I did a podcast about um, the killing of Caesar or something, maybe a hundred odd episodes ago, sometime in 1971 or something like that. But that's the start. So when people, um, just just want to say uh, in relation to that, so people say, well, you know, it starts, the history of Israel starts after the Second World War. This is not true. It's not true. It's a common misconception. So anyway... I'm not going to try and explain the history of the, you know, the end of <laughs> the end of the Roman Empire up to the present day. But let's um, fast forward almost 1,880 years, precisely 1,897 years, um, because this is the formation of the uh, Zionist movement by a guy called Theodore Herzl. And the principle of the Zionist movement was to read the reestablishment of a state of Israel. And the reasons for that were that there were organized pogroms. And what a pogrom is, is an organized massacre of an ethnic group, um, a pogrom. Um, and they were mainly in Russia in the 1880s um, against the Jews and across Eastern Europe. So um, again, another historical concept that perhaps you know you haven't thought of, but these were the very first pogroms in the 1880s. 
Many people um, after these pogroms left to the USA um, and they they left to a moment in the USA that I think is very interesting. And I think, um, um, well, I mean, look, you know, this is this is Agitators Anonymous. So I'm going to kind of, you know, go all over the place a little bit. But um, we are going to, um, you know, um, many, many Jews are fleeing to the USA around this time, 1880, 1890. And this is to a period in American history, which is called the Gilded Age. And I think this is quite important, actually. Uh, well, I think it, I sense it is. And the Gilded Age sort of refers to a period in American history uh, during the late 19th century, uh, from 1870 to the early 1900s. And it was coined by Mark Twain and a guy called Charles Dudley Warner in their novel, The Gilded Age, A Tale of Today. And the term gilded suggests, uh, I think, an outwardly golden and prosperous facade that masks, I think, masks deeper social issues and inequalities. But it's kind of, it's the era of city building. And during this era, the United States experienced, I think, significant economic growth, industrialization and technological advancements. And, um, you know, I think some of the people who were fleeing those pogroms just sort of settled into this period in American history and became very influential in that period of history. I'm talking about like the Carnegies of this world and that kind of thing. Um, although he wasn't, he hadn't fleed a pogrom. But you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, anyway. However, alongside the prosperity, there were profound social problems, including like uh, corruption, labor struggles, uh, all that kind of thing. The Gilded Age, but though, was characterized by rapid industrial expansion uh, in America at the time. I just thought that that would be an interesting aside to the moment when people were moving from those pogroms. And they were coming into a time of great growth in America. And I think that um, many Jews who moved to the USA kind of prospered in that situation. I feel like I've sort of skipped over the um, the Middle Ages and the Rothschilds. And like even when you read um, Shakespeare, The Merchant of Venice, um, maybe I'll come back. I'll come back to that. I'll come back to that. And the reason I'll come back to that is because I'm about to read um, a declaration, a declaration. So we're kind of moving through history. So this is 1917. This is after the First World War, after the horrors of the First World War, um, a declaration called the Balfour Declaration, um, which is a crazy thing. And I've tried to wrap many, many people far, far cleverer than I. Um, in fact, most people far cleverer than I have tried to wrap their heads around um, how this declaration came to be bashed out in a dark room over cigars and brandy in London by um, some men who had never even been to the Middle East and some men who had um, and their background, Christian Zionists. I'm going to explain that in a minute. But the Balfour Declaration is kind of um, one of the main reasons why we are in the situation we are in right now um, in the Middle East. So I'm going to actually read it for you. So the Balfour Declaration, um, this is signed by the Foreign Office, November the 2nd, 1917. Um, and it states, Dear Lord Rothschild. Yep, indeed. Dear Lord Rothschild. I have much pleasure in conveying to you, on behalf of His Majesty's government, the following declaration of sympathy with the Jewish Zionist aspirations, which has been submitted to, submitted to and approved by the Cabinet. His Majesty's government view with favour the establishment in Palestine of a national home for the Jewish people and will use their best endeavours to facilitate the achievement, achievement of this object. It being clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may prejudice the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine 
or the rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. I should be grateful if you would bring this declaration to the knowledge of the Zionist Federation. Um, and that is the letter from Lord um, Balfour. Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour. Yeah, the United Kingdom's Foreign Secretary. Um, so what this document basically seems to do is it promises, um, it promises two separate things that are uh, two separate things to two separate peoples, um, or at least it seems in Congress, it seems like it's an impossible um, promise. But there's one kind of extra side angle to this, and that is that um, some of these people who created this declaration were Christian Zionists. Now, this kind of takes on some sort of extra premise when you've probably seen, um, I think Louis Thoreau did a documentary where he went um, to Israel and he met Christian Zionists. And they were like, it's a tourist thing. Um, where Americans go to see, you know, the, uh, where the Battle of Megiddo in the Bible, I think, will take place. And they believe in, they, the, they, they believe in uh, biblical prophecy and that the hastening of the Jews to Zion will bring about the second coming and all this kind of stuff. And some of these people who wrote this declaration, this was kind of what they believed in. So Christian Zionists, um, individuals or groups within the Christian community um, who supported the establishment and continuation of a Jewish homeland in Israel. And it was often based on their interpretation of biblical prophecy. Um, and they believed in the significance of Israel um, in the fulfillment of that biblical prophecy. prophecy. God, I'm having trouble with my words today. And see uh, the return of the Jews to the Holy Land as a crucial step towards the realization of these prophecies. So you can see this religious, um, this religious ideology was a back was was the set to the backdrop of the Balfour Declaration. Um, it has various theological, political, and cultural expressions, um, focusing on biblical passages from the Old Testament, such as the promises to Abraham and the prophecies of the restoration of Israel. Yeah, like I said, Old Testament stuff, um, and some aligned uh, their support with political ideologies and geopolitical developments in the Middle East. Complicated stuff, right? So while Christian I, you know, it's not a, like a sort of monolithic movement, and it was something along the lines of, um, it was very popular among many people at the end of the 19th century. Um, and I think it sort of, it feels to me like it can be set to the backdrop of an awful lot of the sort of Victorian and post-Victorian sort of religious movements that swept through the upper echelons of sort of educated society, which we find very strange now. But so the Balfour Declaration um, basically set in motion um, the promises uh, to the Zionist movement of the establishment of a state of Israel, but also at the same time stating that it shouldn't infringe on any of the rights of the people on the land already, which seems like um, two things that are incompatible. So as you can see, what we're talking about are biblical claims. Because um, the Romans, as you know, they played a starring role in the Bible. Um, Pontius Pilate and all that kind of stuff. Um, but of course, in the 2000 years since the old, the old Bible was um, written, uh, or whatever way you believe it, and uh, since the old story went down on uh, pen to paper, and the region, of course, I'm not going to use the word occupied, but just people lived in this region. 
um, and those were Arab and Muslim communities. I mean, this is entirely natural. And um, I'm talking about a span of eight, you know, or sorry, 2,000 years. I mean, the Quran, I think, was written in the ninth century. So it's natural. There are many, many peoples who just live in this area. But if we can fast forward now to... Um, well, no, hang on, hang on. Let's not fast forward just yet. So we're in the post-World War II moment. Um, and, you know, th this is an era where the British Empire is sort of um, falling apart. It's relinquishing control of... Or it's in the process of falling apart. Um, and in the post-World War II, post-Balfour Declaration 1917, um, Jews start moving back to the area, to, to, his, to this... Uh, and at the beginning... The British are trying to have a sort of balanced mandate, but this sort of relinquishes itself to civil war in the region. Um, the Balfour Declaration is sort of baffling, and if you you, I'm not going to. I could do a podcast all about the Balfour Declaration, but there are again far better historians than um, our far cleverer people who've sort of tried to look into it. But it just seems like a baffling document, and and the background to it, and how these two sort of like colonial adventurers, sort of boys' own characters. Um, who 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 says history is like Lawrence of Arabia types who are just out looking for adventure, um, set to a sort of religious fervor, who end up making this document, um, and it doesn't really seem to have been exactly over, had so much oversight or overview by enough people. There is, it doesn't seem to have been a huge input um, from uh, many other politicians. This is the period of time where you have Prime Ministers Asquith, who I think he he left in. Or he got he was displaced in 1915, but David Lloyd George um, had some element of of influence over the Balfour Declaration, and he sort of um, favoured partition of the empire. But it probably hasn't escaped your attention that the uh, letter is addressed to uh, Lord Rothschild. Um, make of that what you will, because that's a name that's um, you know kind of kind of it's a very contentious name in history where some people believe that if you mention that name it's part of some conspiracy theory but they were real people they were a real family and they had real influence um there's a niall ferguson has a book um i can't remember the name um civilization i think which has a very great chapter on their their influence um in the 16th and 17th uh maybe 17th and 18th centuries anyway that's not really the point um go and look it up if you you know um and avoid the sort of, uh, like I said, the conspiracy theorist polemic angles of far, one far, the furthest reaches of the um, of the discussion. But they're real people, obviously, and this Balfour Declaration is addressed to a Lord Rothschild. But one thing is for sure, this Balfour Declaration kind of just poured, uh, it's, it's an impossible document that seems to make, you know, a kind of ill-informed sense when you really begin to look into it. Anyway, so, where are we? The British are essentially stuck in the middle of a situa situation now which they helped create, which doesn't seem to have any sort of uh, practical endgame. Now, we get to World War II. Um, and, you know, what can you say? The Holocaust. Over six million European Jews killed. And if you've ever visited Auschwitz, it's a very, very sobering experience. If you haven't, and you're busy posting pictures of hang gliders on your social media, you should maybe um, rein your neck in. I certainly think so. And maybe take a little bit more time from posting memes um, and do a little bit more digging into history. Anyway, that's... Oh, well, there's one saucy hot take. Um, and look, 
this is where a lot of people's understanding of the history seems to come from. Of course, I'm trying to sort of place it in context. But in 1948, a man called David Ben-Gurion um, uh, is very is a sort of very famous figure. And there's sort of large numbers in this post-Second World War state that start to set up the this, this state, the setting up. Come on, brain. The setting up of the state of Israel um, happens in 1948. There is also the contentious, um, well, uh, Nabka. I mean, again, uh, an episode I don't know a hell of a lot about, but this is the sort of um, ethnic cleansing of Palestine in 1948. I'm beginning to sweat a bit <laughs> over some of these sentences because I realize I'm straying into some very dark and complicated history. But, like I said, just give me give me a little uh, um, leeway here as I'm trying to sort of navigate through very, very um, choppy waters. Anyway, 1948 is the year. And this newly founded state of Israel is recognized by the international community and the United Nations um, and all that kind of thing. And this is there for about 19, 20 years. Um, I'm going to move ahead to the 1967, the, the Six Day War. Um, but this is sort of the establishment of recognized borders and a newly created state of Israel recognized by the international community. Of course, um, communities within those territories are displaced or moved. But again, considering um, the you know what happened in the Second World War and the implications of the Second World War, there really was no way that um, the state was not going to be established, at least in my simplistic understanding of the situation. So 1967, let's fast forward to there a little bit. Israel was attacked by Egypt, Syria and Jordan. And well, Jordan just afterwards. And um, this is quite a famous war. It's a sort of six day. In six days, the Israeli army defeated all of those. And it's a sort of very important um, victory in this area. And I think heralded a very great power balance um, or, you know, like um, understanding a power shift maybe in the region. But it is also very important to note that um, after this war, Israel took territory that was beyond the 1948 recognized borders. And this is very important. And this is really as part of the where we are today. And because those two territories were Gaza which belonged at the time to Egypt, and the West Bank, which belonged to Jordan. Um, so these were essentially um, occupied territories after 1967 war. Again, people will argue about those words, um, but I'm really just trying to tell the sort of historical timeline here. So tensions simmer, of course they do. Um, and in 1973, and this is the, one of the crazy things, is that we have the Yom Kippur War, um, which is more or less between most of the same actors. Uh, but the October 7th attacks were um, more or less the 50th anniversary of that Yom Kippur War. And that's what's so surprising that the um, the symbolism, the um, symbolism on the calendar um, seemed to be sort of lost um, in the mix somewhere. It seemed, you know, this sort of... Um, well, let's say I think that modern Israeli politics in the last couple of years has been focused internally on dealing with the different fractions in um, a government that's been pulled and pushed um, by right-wing populist elements and all that kind of thing. 
And so maybe attentions were focused internally as opposed to externally. So let's fast forward a little bit to the 1990s and we have the um, Oslo Peace Accord, uh, which is very interesting. Um, and I think that, let's say, for example, instead of um, murder and slaughter that happened on um, October the 7th, if there had been a, a famous peace accord which had brought peace, um, further peace to the region, I don't, I, w I don't think the same people who were um, whooping and celebrating um, this attack and slaughter would have been whooping and celebrating a peace accord because it's just not quite as sexy, is it? No, not really. But again, if you grew up and you're of a certain age, then the face of Yasser Arafat was everywhere, and he was very famous at this time. And the Oslo Peace Accord um, was basically the idea that there was a two-state solution, that in the process of time, the Palestinians would be granted um, their own state. Now, the problem, of course, is that Gaza and the West Bank are not joined together. Um, geographically, you should look at a map, because even though the West Bank suggests that it's on the west near the coast. It's not. It's um, sort of east inward of land and Gaza is a strip along um, along the ocean. They're not joined together. And it sort of stated that boundaries would be reset, um, but there had been hundreds of enclaves and settlements since then and disputes um, over, you know, settling on, on land that was uh, outside of the original borders. That's an awful lot of what this problem is about as well. Um, and so the Oslo Peace Accords, I think... I remember at the time reading a lot about it um, as a sort of teenager. I was a quite sort of teenager who was less interested in what was going on in school, but more interested in what was going on in the news and geopolitics and reading um, books about, well, I mean, in some cases, the Middle East and all that kind of stuff. And um, I think one of the things that's very uh, striking about the modern geopolitical uh, world setting, or let's say European setting, is the lack of statesmen or stateswomen or of powerful figures who are able to move the um, hands of history. Um, if you think about some of the people, whether it was Reagan, whether it was Thatcher, whether it was Mitterrand, whether, you know, there's, there's very great, you know, even I suppose Merkel was the last powerful stateswoman in Europe. If you think of who we have now, um, in charge across Europe. I mean, what are we doing? Are we asking Rishi, Richie Sunak to uh, fix, to bring people to the table in the Middle East? Um, I mean, it seemed to, it seemed to the news seemed to suggest that Boris Johnson um, sunk a piece, um, you know, talks between Ukraine and Russia. I don't know, maybe he was getting... Well, no, can I, can I say that? And uh, <laughs> Let's just leave that alone. Let's just park that opinion. Um, but... Are we relying on Macron? Uh, you know, M Macron and sort of, you know, the sort of um, elder brother of the likes of Trudeau and stuff, um, you know, to to sit the parties down around the Middle East and bring some sort of peace settlement. It just seems like the lack of... I, I, I often bemoan this in Irish politics as well, that there's, you know, the likes of a Garrett Fitzgerald, if you're from Ireland, you'll know. Who he was. These people are, are John Hume, who helped bring around the Northern Ireland peace process, amongst many other people. These statesmen, um, you know, lo love or loathe Blair, I suppose at the time he had an influence on this. In the 90s, it was Clinton. There was a very great focus on the Middle East, I think, is because people understood that the tensions there could flare up and cause literally a conflagration that would engulf. Um, an awful lot of the world and that's where we're on the precipice of right now but I'm not sure if I'm going to get to that in my in this podcast maybe that's for another podcast 
But um, so the 1990 piece of chords um, kind of herald a form of uneasy peace, um, uneasy peace, let's say that. Um, but um, Arafat's party, Fatah, um, see, Gaza is, you know, ruled by, let's fast forward to 2004 5 and Israel withdraw from Gaza and hand it over to Palestine control. And kind of what happens almost immediately is that Hamas, um, a sort of radical terrorist group, um, takes over the Gaza Strip. And you've, you know, and you've got Palestine is divided because you've got Gaza is ruled by Hamas and the West Bank is ruled by Fatah. Fatah is um, Arafat's party. Um, and look, I mean, that was part of my uh, part of the problem. And I said it on the podcast with many people now marching across Europe um, with like, you know, sort of liberal minded, new left kind of people with, you know, very sort of open progressive views. You could see like, you know, queers for Palestine flags and this and that and the other marching beside people who, you know, who are carrying ISIS flags, who are clearly looking at them going, look at these useful idiots, because under like Hamas, okay, it ain't quite ISIS. Okay, here's a saucy hot take on 32 minutes. But it's clear that they are, you know, opposed not only to the very existence of Israel, and you saw the savage butchery they wielded out to just um, any Jews who they came across, but also they're fundamentally against the West. They're against your liberal principles. So going out and marching, um, waving flags, um, you know, is just the cognitive dissonance involved in supporting people who would wish you death <laughs> is beyond me. But anyway, there's your saucy hot take on 33 minutes, and I don't think it's really that uh, saucy. But anyway, so they withdraw from Gaza. And that's sort of where I'm going to leave the idea, um, you know, the kind of historical background. A lot of it is to do with um, biblical claims, the Roman Empire, um, the, you know, the pogroms of the 1880s in Eastern Europe and Russia, the Balfour Declaration in 1917, um, uh, the, you know, and then, of course, the horrors of the Holocaust in the Second World War. I mean, it's and of course, I don't want to appear one sided. You've got the displacement of, you know, Palestinians as well. Uh, they have a right to a to a homeland, to their own self-determination, to respect and dignity and all those kind of things. And a, a, a democratic political process, I guess, you know, and right now the leveling of Gaza does no one any good. There seems to be no plan for what to do afterwards and the humanitarian crisis there as it's unfolding is uh, unspeakable as well. I mean, it's just, um, you know, this. all of this is just an incredibly dark moment in modern history, which just seems to echo so many things from the past. Um, it's got so many dark and complicated coefficients going in to make, um, the, you know, to create the moment we are in as a society now. And the very great risk is, is that this broadens out into a, into a conflict um, between some elements who have nuclear capability and don't, I suppose. Um, but you're going to start to see Hezbollah, who are another um, group in uh, southern Lebanon, sponsored by Iran. I mean, has this entire thing been created because uh, the Iranian mullahs were observing the Saudi Accords where Israel was about to sort of make peace with Saudi Arabia and they were trying to torpedo that? I mean, there's so many potential things happening here. The leaders of Hamas, I think, are reside in Qatar, you know, where that old World Cup was, where Messi uh, won the World Cup and completed football. Yeah, is your brain spinning yet? Um, and it was only just days before the attacks that Jake Sullivan, 
the U.S. advisor, I think, to the Middle East, um, uh, you know, uh, in Biden's staff said, never has the Middle East been so peaceful, famous last words. Um, so it's an incredibly complicated situation, and I just would um, not advise, but just say people try and have a little look into the history before making a pronounced statements, because it seems to me like the cognitive dissonance involved in you know some of the same people who are like pro lockdown save every life then celebrating seeming to celebrate um or revel in um murder on another level seemed to me to be a crazy thing and it seemed to me to be an incredible hypocrisy i understand that it fed into all of the tribalism of modern internet society um and it is possible of course to want a better life for um, uh, Palestinian people living in a kind of blockade um, society in a sort of open prison society want a better life for them but also want Israel to be able to protect its citizens and have security and nobody wants murder murder is murder death is death and so um, you can you can support um, you know the principle of two three four five separate different things and that's the problem and I've said it so many times on the podcast that um, modern tribal internet culture um, wants us to be to view everything in a binary it's good or evil um, and that nuance and context are not important or they're just getting in the way of your hot take um, and look I've thrown out a few little you know kind of I don't think they're really even hot takes but the world should be paying attention to what's happening because if Hezbollah starts attacking from southern Lebanon let's say Israel bombs Iran backed by the US who backs Iran well now we're looking at Putin and Russia and you are looking at a conflict that could expand beyond the proxy nature of the original Cold War geopolitics because I think people want to place a very simplistic structure over this they either want to say Palestine's good Israeli bad and place it in the context of colony and empire or try and place kind of modern American cultural war issues and just neatly place them over um, a region where, as you've just listened to in this podcast, we're going back to biblical history. Um, it just doesn't work like that. And it's a fool's errand to try and do so. I mean, can you do a deal with a death cult? Can you do a deal with people who believe in biblical and religious prophecy? Can you do a deal with people who believe that paradise waits for them after this life? Um, not sure we have a statesman alive who could really uh, bring all of these parties to the table. But here we are. Um, Agitators Anonymous episode 180 is my um, perhaps foolhardy attempt to um, bring some levity or understanding or historical understanding or context to, the, um, to what's happening in the Middle East um, there's a few saucy hot takes in there, um, but it, that's not really what this is about. Um, I would just really advise or really recommend just having a look into the madness of the Balfour Declaration. And this will um, and also look into, you know, the pogroms of the 1880s and pogroms of the 1880s and the Balfour Declaration of 1917. Just take a look at those things and who the people were sitting around the table and um you begin to get some little bit more context of what's happening. All right, my friends, perhaps it may be the last podcast I ever do. Who knows? Episode 180. Um, we shall see you next week. And I will have that sponsorship by 
um, a band next week. You can hear some of that. And um, we'll see you on the other side, my friends. <laughs>